God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. So today we start a short sermon series to start the fall called Home Economics, Neighboring in the Good News. And I feel a little in need to introduce this for us. You see, we're coming on four years together as a church in this neighborhood, and these past four years have been really fruitful. I remember reading a quotation when we were meeting with our core team to plant Oak Church, and the quotation was from Eugene Peterson, and his phrase is that every step is an arrival. Um, And that seemed kind of like permission for us from the get-go, kind of permission to go slow and to celebrate these small things, to zoom in really tight and to, to drill down in this place not getting obsessed or distracted or discouraged by speed or size or spread, but instead asking God to cultivate an imagination and an intimacy for what God is already doing, who he's already calling, and the new creation that has already begun to burst forth from the old. This seems like a great time, then, coming up on this marker of God's faithfulness for this church community, which has undergone, like, massive personnel fluctuations. That's just the nature of this place that we live in. As we receive and equip and embrace and send people. It seems like a good time for this church community, which is so active in like receiving many of you this summer. Maybe this is even your first time here and, and we receive you and, and see you as a gift. It seems like a good time for us, this ever-forming us, to double down on this vision in this brilliantly creative and attentive word who became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, who funds this imagination and still calls us to this sort of ministry in life. It's a life which Mary Oliver instructs that we should pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. 
Those are our goals, and that's a little bit of what this series strives to be about. So a note, a note about the title, which might be a little confusing. First, how many people got to take a home ec class in high school? Does that still exist, right? I wish, that would have been, made my GPA better. <clears throat> Whatever images you have about that phrase, try to hold them off. <laughs> We're talking about God's economics, this oikonomia, and it means something more like an outworking, like an activity. The, the triune household of God spills out God's love into the world in real, tangible, local, and personal ways. We can paraphrase the great church father, Forrest Gump, in saying that the triune God is as the triune God does, right? That's kind of crudely summarizing what theologians have made money, not a whole lot of money, for millennia on, right? This is the outworking and overflow of who God is, the nearness and the practicality of this economic trinity that isn't at all different from the supremacy and like the radical otherness of this divine Godhead, this imminent trinity, the, the kind of God that when Scripture talks about we can't look at God in the face because he's too big and too different from us. We've really waded pretty quickly into deep theological waters without flotation devices, so I apologize for that. But know that that's kind of embedded in what we're talking about here. For us, uh, this means um, something that Jesus himself was fond of saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. Simply enough. Simple enough that we can spend the rest of our lives unpacking that, that phrase, that sentiment, that reality. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is near. God is reachable. God is in our midst. God cares about us, about everything. Not somewhere far, special, or different, but in your homes. Like, over your picket fences... Walking down your street, as we sang earlier, the, that haunting line of that song, it's exciting, but it's also haunting. In places we don't choose, God is there. Perhaps the most faithful thing we can do, the best way we can grow our faith is to cultivate some sort of like wakefulness to see God working right under our noses. So we'll spend these next few weeks exploring the ways God has called us into this good work of neighboring in the good news in the places we already are. For some of us, that's this actual neighborhood, but we all have some sort of neighborhood. Maybe that neighborhood for you this season is primarily your academic department. Maybe that's the staff that you work with. Maybe it's your apartment complex or your dorm, or maybe it's your actual neighborhood. There will be some moments during this time of reflection about our experiences in this neighborhood together. We, many of us have kind of adopted this neighborhood, and that's great. There will be some practical exercises for us to develop kind of postures of expectation and prayer and availability to God. Today's was the blessing of the books. We'll host an event on the 9th with author Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove about reconstructing the gospel, and hopefully this will continue to challenge us in the faith that we embrace and extend towards others. And we'll experience communion in multiple ways around multiple tables. The culmination of this being kind of this throw open the windows, open air potluck down at the park, down at Wrightwood Park. Uh, 
a couple of times ago when we did this, uh, my friend Val, who many of you know is here, and, and she came up to me kind of frantic and she said, where are the highways and byways of this neighborhood? And I was like, what are you talking about, Val? And she said, the highways and byways, because Jesus says, go to the highways and byways and invite people to eat when you throw a feast. So that's what we're hoping to do. Communion in public space, God's fellowship feast expanded beyond church doors. So that's where we're going. Where we've been this summer is this, this beautiful exploration of God's presence and promise in the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. Uh, I've loved being there with y'all and, and gaining insights from you guys, and your feedback has been amazing, and, and it's, it, it was awesome last week. Also, I, I got to listen in um, and glean awesome insight and wisdom from, from Meg on uh, the circle of the church year with our kids. Again, this way that we inhabit in, uh, time and orient ourselves over and over to God's presence and God's time. You can see how these themes start to build and overlap and uh, kind of continue on with our, with our reading this morning from Psalm 46. Psalm 46 features all of these presence words. Refuge in whom we dwell. Help in trouble. God is within the city. That is a striking phrase, especially as they're embattled. The Lord Almighty is with us. God is our fortress. And then God said, I will be exalted among the nations, in the earth, in their midst, with and for us. The hope of this psalm and many other psalms is not just help or protection from bad circumstances. It's not a reset or a a restart or even a removal That's part of it. That's not all of it. The hope of these psalms, the primary massive hope of these psalms, is that God will be present in this world. It says, lift your head, Lord. Look at us. Don't forget us. Lord, speak to us, God. Protect us. Be our refuge and our help. God will be present in this world, even in its sin and death, and that somehow that presence will transform, and tra- transform this world and transform us as part of this creation. That would walk away from an encounter more able to be aware with just how near God is. And that that'll grow our affection. That that'll grow our ability to point these things out to others. We're, we then kind of become guides for other people about how near God is. That it'll expand our imagination for just how expansive and grace-filled and kingdom coming God's presence is and wants to be. A theologian uh, writes about the Psalms. The Psalms not only exist that we are called to live at the intersection of God's space and our space of heaven and earth to be, in other words, temple people. They call us to live at that intersection of sacred space. The temple in the holy land that surrounds us. Wendell Berry says that there's never been an unsacred place. There's just sacred spaces and desacralized spaces. Spaces that have been made unholy. 
that God calls us to live at this intersection of the temple and the holy land that surrounds it, the rest of human space, the world where idolatry and injustice still wreak their misery. God's still coming into our presence. Robert Alter is a Bible translator, translates Psalm 46 and says, the seas, these waters, roar and roil. Isn't that a good image? Roar and roil. Mountains heave in its surge. A stream, its its rivulets gladden God's town. You see how this like one square inch of presence grows into God's like expansive uh, availability to us, even in the midst of unrest and chaos even in the midst of idolatry and injustice. God's presence doesn't require ideal conditions or like a monastery as a jumping off point. It's not something to be protected or isolated, but to be cherished and recognized and extended. So speaking of monasteries, last week I was away from you all, and I got the amazing chance to spend four days at Gethsemane Abbey on a silent retreat as a gift for my amazing wife. Four days away from kids is incredible. Gethsemane is located about 45 minutes south of Louisville, Kentucky. It was a home of famed spiritual writer and monk Thomas Merton. And having grown up Catholic, I realized I, I might have a little easier sympathy with this like mon- monastic lifestyle. Like, even the word uh, monastic it has some meaning of being alone with God, you know, being alone with others with God. Uh, and when you're used to a family life with four small kids, the idea of getting out of bed or going into bed at 8 p.m. and then getting up at 3.45 because you plan to is actually kind of interesting. Like, it's a purposeful alternative to those early years of bedtime wrangling and middle-of-the-night negotiations, Right? Like, you just have to wake up and chant with other grown men. It's kind of cool. For many of us, though, this lifestyle seems so strange, and it is. (laughs) This lifestyle seems so impractical. Like, what they do, like, what do they really do all the time, right? Uh, This is like what your parents ask you when you go to college. You're going to major in what, right? Or this lifestyle seems really sectarian, like, away from the world. Didn't Jesus call us to be the light in the world, like to the world, engaged with the world? But reading Psalm 46 at Gethsemane, I couldn't help but notice a few things I learned in my short time there. First, I noticed Gethsemane's gates. Uh, Here's a picture I took, and I don't know how well you can see it, but this whole place, as isolated as it was, and I got an Uber from the airport, and she went, you're going where, right? (laughs) This whole place, as isolated as it was, still had boundaries, like boundaries to protect and guard and delineate. After all, God is our fortress and our refuge. The original desert monks fled from the world because they saw, and this is a quote, Society as a shipwreck from which every single man had to swim for his life. The desert became for them not a place of exile, but a place of promise and safety. 
But here's the kicker, in this current context we find ourselves, where like building walls is constantly in the headlines. If you look closely at their walls and their gates, this one is on the edge of the abbey. If you look closely at the bottom there, there's a little hole. <laughs> I assume for like a monastic cat or something, right? But if you look closely at all of these gates, all of these doors, every door I encountered, even the ones that said monastic area do not enter, every door was unlocked. Every barrier was permeable. To me, this seemed like such a brilliant picture for the life that God is calling us to in this place. That we're protected, but we're available. That we're set apart, but we're not isolated. Even in the midst of our daily lives, where we're prone to kind of drifting along or getting stuck in that shipwreck. We need to ask the Lord to protect us. We need to recognize the Lord with us. And sometimes we need to retreat into God's presence for healing and renewal and then welcome others into that rest. That's a little something these monks' walls and gates and doors showed me. Another thing I noticed at the Abbey was how structured our day was around prayer. It's hard not to notice that. These monks gathered in their sanctuary, this is their sanctuary, gathered in their sanctuary eight times a day for prayer, starting at 3.45 and ending in Compline at 7.30. Their prayer had this characteristic of work to it, chanting the psalms for the life of the world outside the abbey. They chant through all 150 psalms every week and then like rinse, repeat, start over the next week, right? There was this steadfastness to this rhythm that at first seemed really intimidating and limiting. Like I remember the first day I was there, I was like, how am I going to get a substantial nap if I have to set an alarm to wake up for prayer? But then after just a mere couple days, this rhythm became incredibly freeing and orienting. I knew when was the time to hike and when was the time to just stay close because prayer was coming. And don't let me like over-spiritualize their prayer um, as their work. They also do a ton of work, like real work. Monks are blue-collar mystics. These Trappist brothers change in and out of their robes and work clothes all day, and they spend their day keeping up the abbey uh, to welcome others to like produce products. This abbey um, makes fruitcake and fudge, and they used to make cheese, and some make beer and all sorts of great goods uh, to, to support their their abbey and, and help fund their community. It was interesting to me though, and I noticed, so this bottom area is where they gather to pray facing each other. In the very back that you can't see very well is like a kind of a normal um, Catholic church where you celebrate mass. It's, it's very kind of formal and reverential and they do celebrate mass every day there. But uh, for me, it was, it really surprised me because uh, normally, my normal view of church is where we gather to pray and where we gather to worship and experience God's presence. And then we, we charge our batteries so then we can go out in the world and like do the real work and struggle with our real concerns and hope to keep some of that fading glow from Sunday going until we can come back to recharge, right? Like to mix metaphors, church is like a charging station for an electric car, but somehow we're like those 
um, glow bracelets that you pop, and like the second you pop them, you, they start to fade out, right? And sometimes you put them in the freezer to prolong them, but they're just gonna die soon, right? That's, that's us, and, and, and that, that's such a diminished picture. But this is complicated at the Abbey, so those categories don't nearly make as much sense. Because the sanctuary, where God is found, at least in our minds, is where they pray and work in the presence of God. So then they can go out of the sanctuary walls and work and pray in the presence of God. They pray and work so they can work and pray. <laughs> and it's still kind of delineated, but the church just kind of becomes their workshop and the world becomes their sanctuary. It's kind of, it's kind of flipped for them. This life of prayer and work and presence is the closest thing to achieving what Paul encourages us towards, praying without ceasing. Praying without ceasing. This means short, recurring notice of God's presence. Maybe like a, a prayer that, that I took up while I was there, this Jesus prayer that many of us know, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Dozens, maybe hundreds of times throughout the day. I got to try this out um, going from like this really prayer-friendly place. It's, it's really silent, the confines of the abbey. And then, so that was the first four days of my week. And then the next three was with an uh, annual reunion of college friends called Man's Weekend. <laughs> you might know, you don't know my friends, but you might know that that's probably not the most prayer-conducive setting, right? I found myself, though, with this... Jesus prayer. Well, first I found myself waking up on Friday morning audibly hearing these, these, uh, the doxology that the monks were singing all week. It had been like indelibly pressed into my head. So I woke up uh, hearing this triune prayer and it was wonderful. That started to fade for sure. But this, this, this small discipline that by no means were deep grooves woven, uh, like spun into my life um, kept up throughout the week. I found myself praying under my breath, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. In the midst of my friends, like while playing driveway basketball or eating hot chicken or listening to some like strange wide-ranging discussions about every topic you might imagine or swimming in the pool or making a grocery run or getting badly beaten in Halo on Xbox or walking over the Ohio River on this really cool bridge that they converted to a footbridge all in the presence of God. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. It was, it, was, it was, in a lot of ways, just as prayerful as my time at the Abbey, even without the guard, even without the silence. This attunement to God's presence is something available to us, no matter what our work or our context is. We, too, can be blue-collar mystics. How about that, right? I challenge you in this coming season to develop some rhythms and habits to do this. And like habits are just like they start with some motivation and you mix in like consistency and maybe some accountability and boom, you have a habit. It's something that you've been doing for a while. And this can serve to expand your prayer out of the sanctuary and like added on some restful labor into it. And so then you have prayer and work and living in God's presence. And oftentimes, I think this has to start with silence. Man, silence is hard to come by, right? 
We'll have a brief moment to do that together in a minute. My experience at the Abbey like majored in silence, right? This is a sign they had at all the tables uh, in the lunchroom, cafeteria tables. And I'll admit, it is a little awkward to eat all week in the midst of strangers that you've never gotten to introduce yourself with words, just like head nods and evaluating what they put on their plate in silence. And then you don't even get to say goodbye, right? But wow, what a gift to knock down like the constant chatter that permeates our ears in our minds most of the time. You can find even just a little bubble of silence, like run to that, okay? And, and, and I think we all can. In the psalm, there's all of this noise, all of this discord and pollution, mountains and oceans and cities and nations and armies and kingdoms, and then cutting through all of it is the Lord's voice. Another sermon for another day, but this voice elsewhere, like in Psalm 29, shatters the cedars of Kadesh. The Lord speaks and like trees explode because of the power, right? This voice now sounds, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Get those two things. Quiet. Another translation of, of that verse says, enough. I can't help but hear like an echo of Jesus talking to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter uh, tries to get really violent and defensive to, to help Jesus. And, and, and Jesus just stops him and says, Peter, enough. Put those swords away. God is our refuge. Be still and know that I am God. Or the message paraphrase begs us to step out of the traffic and be present to me. That's what God says. The other thing is know. Know that I am God. Not just any God, but the God who is here. The God who's in control. The God who will intercede. The God who is present to you. The God of help in ages past and hope for years to come. Most of the time in my life, I'm not silent if I'm going to confess to you guys. I'm not quiet or silent because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'll be misunderstood by others. Maybe I'm afraid that I'll be misunderstood by God. If I don't wait and listen for God to fill the space with his words of life, I'm just going to fill the space with my words. But silence... Silence is the start of trust. Have you ever been in a diner and seen uh, an old couple together and they just sit in each other's presence in silence? And you wonder, how is that possible? Why isn't anyone talking and they're just perfectly content in each other's presence? Another story I heard, and this is more on a neighborhood level, of these, these guys in Nashville, Tennessee, who, they're these buds, they live about 10 minutes walking distance apart from each other, and they've committed in their very busy, cluttered lives that what they're going to do is each week, one time a week, they're going to walk towards each other, meet somewhere in the middle, depending on who's walking faster. And initially it started as a handshake and kind of catching up, but in order to sustain it and to keep it going, and they've been doing it for more than two years, uh, they'll just text each other, I'm leaving now, start walking. 
and then they'll walk about 20 paces past each other, turn around, give each other a high five, and walk home. No one talks, right? Because this thing has become such a rhythm, such a presence, and such a life-giving way for them, again, to be still and to allow God to speak and allow their, their friendship to, to open them up to each other. And we can, we can trust in this. We can trust in this because, because we know that God is not silent. God is speaking and God has spoken. The word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. And that means the capacious word of God of creation became small and fragile and local. This means for us that when we're dealing with the movement of God, God's economy, that a telescope is really appropriate all the wonders that God has done and all the ways that God's personality and workmanship is amplified out through all creation. But maybe for us, more appropriate is a microscope. <laughs> that, that we get small and focused. This dwelling word wants to surprise us in these places we already are because he's already gone ahead of us to protect us and provide for us. If we're awake to his presence, he'll challenge us to join him, taking up our crosses to follow, suffering with him, but also getting more life than we ever could have imagined or hoped for on our own. This is a life that is abundant and overflowing, a life that radiates outward to others. It's a life that includes us in this most cosmically interesting and beautiful work of renewal that God is doing. And all the places and the people that we sometimes know so well, we don't expect anything different to ever happen. Maybe that's ourselves. We, we think we know ourselves so well, we don't expect anything ever different to happen. So we're afraid to let God in there and tinker with us. Will you instead be still and know that God is God? Will you join God in this good work? Uh, will you guys pray with me and then I'll lead us into a little bit of silence in which we can reflect and listen for God. God, you are our refuge and our strength. It means we don't have to fight. It means any boundaries we put up are, um, are not ultimate and not even all that safe. Um, you're breaking into our lives. Help us welcome that. Help us make room for that. Help us recognize that and join with it. And we thank you for all the places and people represented in this room. Uh, we look at this crowded table, which is so beautiful uh, because it represents a million different interactions that we're going to have over the course of these next couple months a million different thoughts, a million different ways that you're going to try to speak to us. Lord, tune our ears to hear um, your grace. Uh, open our minds and open our hands that we might work with you. Uh, we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.